0: text is today in ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 6 and i'm reading from the new living translation i love the way this translation uh puts this this text that we're reading we'll read from verse 6 to the end of the chapter and this is god's plan both gentiles and jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God the creator of all things had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all of this was to use the, churches, the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ that though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this text is about a spiritual journey that we're on. It's a great segue for us. Between what we just finished in Nathan's series called "Wonderful Counselor" and what we're about to go into the Advent, Christmas Advent series that'll begin next Sunday, spiritual completeness that Paul talks about there at the end of that text—he said, "You will be complete in Him." Spiritual completeness seems to be a pretty heady goal, but in this text, Paul doesn't back away from it at all. He just goes right in and says, "You can be complete." In Jesus Christ, he says it, verse 19, being complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now, if we're really honest with each other, completeness is what we're all seeking for. It's what we're all looking for in life. And even even if we're not looking, as it were, to God for that in our quest, we still want it. We want an integrated life where everything is kind of working, everything comes together, and life should be and is what we hope and expect. Pastor Tim Keller in New York City says that disintegration is a life where things are falling apart and not working. But we all want the opposite we want to be fulfilled, we want to be complete, we want to have nothing lacking. No uncertainties or insufficiencies. That's that's human aspirations, whether you're a Christ follower or not. We're built that way to expect that that's what life should be. Paul's claim here, I believe, in many ways, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, is a theme that we see throughout the entire Bible. If you would read the Bible looking for that theme, you would find it everywhere. But there's also this problem that it, we can't quite get it. It never quite happens. That, that which we aspire to continually eludes us. In the chapter preceding chapter 3, chapter 2, I used to read this when I was a teenager and running from God. I would read it. I don't know why I did that, but I guess it was sort of like a, maybe a little catharsis, you know, to make me feel better about myself. But it didn't help because it, Paul just begins it and said, you were dead. The whole chapter is about being dead. You were dead, lost, outside the blessings. The whole chapter. We don't have time to go into it this morning, but if you want to you know, make yourself feel bad <laughs> or remember how it was, read chapter 2. Because that is the story of humanity's tragic, tragic lost, broken condition without Jesus. So after we come to know Jesus, we know things have changed, we sense it internally, we see some things changing on the outside, hopefully, but we all often struggle with this, what does completeness look like for me? What what should that look like? Most of the time we equate completeness with external experiences. Good, Good job, respect of our peers, a bigger house, a better car, a marriage partner, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you're single. But the Bible actually, and that's not bad, those things are good. But the Bible actually emphasizes over and over again that these external things, these external signs of success and completeness, are not the real issue. They're not the real goal. They're not the real thing that makes us feel and experience completeness. They're important for our lives in some ways but they're not what really defines completeness. The essence of completeness, as the Bible defines it, is something internal. It's knowing something. It's having assurance about something, even when we don't yet have it. Hebrews says in chapter 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for it is the evidence of things not seen we need it yet we don't have it but we know it's coming that's what faith is now holding i brought this along today i'm you know reading from my ipad my digital bible and but this bible i bought in 1975 so i would have been 20 years old when I bought this Bible. And if you can look at my face, you know well, that was a few years ago. And I, it's a King James Bible and you know I know there's some disputing about King James and I'm not going to disparage King James or disparage the people who like other translations. But back in this time, there weren't the plethora of options that there are today. There's been an amazing wave, tsunami of biblical translations since even 1975. The NIV was just coming out in those days. Um, But I was reading the King James at that time because I didn't know any better. I like the King James. We were living, we'd just come home from the mission field We'd we'd gone to the mission field, so this was 1975 when I bought this Bible, I was married a year later, and a couple years later after that we started having children, and we ended up in Asia as missionaries, and in 1981 we came back from the field with our kids, two kids, and we were on this short eight-month furlough before we were going to go back to Asia again, and so we were transitory, we are in transition. So we moved into my wife, Beth's parents' home, which is a very small house, one bedroom downstairs, and then up in the attic area was another little two-bedroom, you know, walk like this kind of thing. And we parked in there, shared the bathroom downstairs for all these months. And I remember we were desperately poor. We just did not have it, we were missionaries and The stereotypical missionary is desperately poor. (laughs) I'm a missions leader now and we're trying to change that and God's answering my prayers and our team's prayers and our missionaries are getting what we call fully funded, thank God. But uh, we were not fully funded, we were far from fully funded. And I was stressing about it because now it wasn't just me and it wasn't just my wife. We had two kids to take care of. I'd go down into the basement of this house, because in Indiana there are such things as basements, and we went down into the basement. I went down in the basement and set up a little card table and a a rickety folding chair to do my Bible study and prayer time every day, and surrounded by tools and canned goods on the walls, and that particular day I went down and I was just like, God, something has got to change about our finances. So I opened my Bible and I turned Without any effort, I turn to this this text in John 14, where Jesus was, in 13, he was revealing to them that he's going to go to, the, to Calvary and he's going to lay his life down for the world and be killed, be betrayed and be killed. And the disciples were like, what? You know, this can't happen. You're going to take over the world. You know, you're, no. So they're asking questions and they're distressed about it. And in John 14, verse 1, this is Jesus' answer to them. He says, let not your, and I'm reading from the King James. So let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, now I'm sitting in the basement when I'm reading this, okay? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So I'm reading this, sitting in a basement, distressing about finances, and I have this epiphany. And it wasn't about Calvary, although this is the text and the context, it was about my own experience of not having enough. And I saw the Lord was actively preparing a blessing for Doug Gaiman and his family. I mean I saw the the printing presses of heaven rolling out newspapers for tomorrow's edition and the headlines were, God blesses Doug Gaiman's family. From that moment, I mean it was an absolute transformative moment. From that point forward I knew we were going to be all right. I went upstairs and got, it was about noon by then, and I went upstairs and packed Beth and the kids into our rickety old car and drove them to McDonald's for lunch. Which I look back and I think, wow. (laughs) But when you don't have any money, McDonald's is a big deal. When we see how God wants to bless us, we actually start experiencing it in advance. Something internal happens before the external is seen. It's like this, talking to surfers on Pensacola Beach. The surf is up, okay, now you surfers, I'm gonna mess with you a little bit. I'm a surfer, so I'm gonna mess with me a little bit. The surf is up, your head, it's head high waves, they're glassy, offshore breeze, perfect conditions. You load up your board, you start driving to the beach. You're miles away from the beach, but what happens inside? You can already smell the salt in the air. Your heart starts pounding. You can see the waves in your head. In your mind, you're paddling out on that first wave. You drop into a set wave. It's a perfect right or a left if you're a goofy foot. And you scream down the line, but the fact is you're still in your car. <laughs> that is what assurance is. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. You don't yet have it, but you know it's coming. Now, why did this happen to me at this moment? It happens because we bury, we bury our minds and our hearts into God's word. I got this from God's word. I committed my hope to him, and I sought him, and he answered me with a word. It didn't even happen yet, but I knew. I made a habit at those days of seeking God. The Bible, the word of God, was my daily bread. I read big picture Bible for the sake of trying to understand this huge narrative, these You know, all these books of the Old Testament, all these books of the New Testament. I did devotional reading just for seeking God's daily encouragement. I was a young Christian in the back in those days. I was hungry to understand more about his great love and what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 3. Sometimes I would ask God to give me a revelation of Jesus. And I remember one time I'm asking God, give me a revelation of Jesus, you know. And I had this distinct impression, it wasn't like an audible voice, but I had this distinct impression, the Lord says, you want a revelation of Jesus? Read your Bible. Oh, you know, it's right here. Look what Paul says in verse 18. When Christ makes his home in our hearts, he says, our roots grow down deep into God's love and keep us strong. We have the power to understand how wide and how long and how deep his love is. And then, and then, we are made complete with all the fullness of of life. Missiologist Steve Hawthorne says this about the Bible. He says, we tend to turn to the Bible as a self-help book, and we end up being bored or frustrated with what seems to be a rambling collection of stories. What if the Bible is more a book about God than it is about us? How thrilling to discover that every element of Scripture, the reports of events, the history, the verses of wisdom, the poetry, the lyrical prophecies, converge into one central saga of one worthy person. The Bible is basically a story about God, Hawthorne says. If I accomplish anything this morning in this talk, I hope that I can instill in you an almost insatiable hunger for you to read your Bibles and discover the treasures that's just in these few texts we read in Ephesians chapter 3. So let's talk about this one little text for a few minutes. There are three things in this, in this text that we read, Three, what I call pillars of our faith. The first is God's promises. Paul begins this by saying that both Jews and Gentiles are inherited of the riches of God's provision and the promises of blessings. Well, promises is just another word for his covenants or his testimonies, two testaments, old and new. So there's promises, there's prosperity, God's prosperity, and God's purposes. These three pillars God's promises, God's prosperity, and God's purposes in this text we're reading. Paul says this in verse 6. He says, Both Jews and Gentiles who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children and the promises of blessings. This is, you know, the early church, and the Jews understood what Paul meant when he said that. They were a little unsure, some of the Jews were a little unsure. You mean the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, get the share equally? Yeah, not sure about that. It took a while to get that through. But you have to understand, Paul was coming from this premise that the Old Testament is filled with God's promises of blessings. Another word that can be used for promises is God's covenants. They're almost interchangeable words. The word testament, which we call in the Old and New, is another word that means the same thing. From the very beginning, when the world fell into sin, God made a promise, a covenant with with Adam and Eve. It's in the Old Testament. You can read it in Genesis chapter 3. When the flood came, God made promises after the flood to Noah and his family. Again, a story in the Old Testament, a covenant that God made with these people. When God called Abraham to leave his home and his wife and his children, they didn't have any children at the time, but God made a promise that they would. And he says in Genesis 12, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. They didn't have one child. His wife, Sarah, was barren. When when God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he gave them the law in Exodus chapters 19 and 20, and God made again promises to Moses. All through the Old Testament, promises, covenants, this testament of God's plan, the promises of blessings that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 3. And finally in the New Testament, the fulfillment came, this thing that everyone was looking for when Christ came and he completed it all, he fulfilled them all in Jesus Christ. So the essence of all these promises, the promises of blessings, is prosperity. Walk with me and I will bless you abundantly. Sometimes the Jews did, sometimes they did not. The Old Testament history is this colorful mosaic, tragic mosaic of miraculous human and miraculous mosaic of human history about God, how how God patiently worked with his imperfect people. When the time of the New Testament arrived, God revealed his plan for the world, and that is the gospel is not for Jews only, but for everyone. And that's what Paul's writing about, the Jews and the Gentiles. He's writing this as a Jew and reminding everyone that this gospel is not just for my people, but for all people. Paul talks about prosperity in these verses. You can see it over and over. The riches of inheritance and all that God has provided. Ironically, he's writing this from prison. Even while he's in chains, Paul had this same assurance that I referred to earlier. He sees something, he's, he carries something internally, a, an assurance of things that he was hoping for. And he even says in prison, he says, God, gave me the privilege of serving Him by spreading this good news. God gave me the privilege of telling about the endless treasures available in Christ. He says something else here that I think is really interesting. I love the way the New Living Translation puts it. He says, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom. Do you know that when you come to church, God puts himself on display. There's something unique about coming to church. I see this every time I come to church here at Upper Room. And I'm not just saying Upper Room is special, there's lots of churches, but God, people at Christ-centered churches who worship him, he puts himself on display. This glow of God's glory is in the church is among us we see it in our confident bold access to his presence during worship people close their eyes and smile and it's like their faces glow Caitlin Pooley is great at this (laughs) I'll pick on you Caitlin every time Caitlin worships the Lord whether she's leading or like today she's sort of standing in the background She's just got this glow about her. I'm gonna make her totally embarrassed and she's gonna like be so self-conscious she'll never do it again. <laughs> but Caitlin, you know how to glow. That's because of the glory of God. Why did, the, why, I remember when I was a young man, I noticed this as a young Christian coming to church. I, These people glowing, what, what is this? These big, crazy, you know, smiles on their faces and heads are laid back. And, God's prosperity is on display and the joy we experience in community. <clears throat> if you're a cynic, you think we're just a bunch of fools. I remember this movie called Pollyanna. You younger people probably don't know this movie, but you ought to go get it and rent it and watch it. Pollyanna, she is the irrepressible optimist. Everywhere she goes... She's just beaming with optimism about everything. And one time, a mort- mortician is helping a, a woman who's sort of a negative, depressed person plan her funeral. And Pollyanna's sitting there, and they're talking. Of, she was there a moment before, and the mortician is talking about Pollyanna. He says, All the time, just sunshine and flowers. It's enough to make you sick. <laughs> we just can't help ourselves. God is good and we are grateful. He's on display in the way we welcome people when they come and join us. He's on display in the compassion we have for those among us or those in our community who are suffering and in need. McKenna got up here this morning and talked about that. Nobody's putting a gun to our head and making us do like those things. We just do them. When we catch what Paul is saying in these verses about God's promises and and God's prosperity, He just overflows in us. It's like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who's talking to Jesus and asking about this water that he had. And he said, if you drink the water that I give you, out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Now. Extroverts kind of get this, you know, if you're an extrovert, you get this. You just, you naturally just effervesce, you're outgoing, you're out there, you're flowing all the time. But us introverts, sometimes we need to be reminded, you know, to let the treasure show a little bit more. I think Paul was a little bit of an introvert. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, we have this treasure in a jar of clay. John Wesley was an introvert, too, and he wrote this about his conversion experience. I just think this is so great. He says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. <laughs> like, don't tell anybody. <laughs> when God reveals himself to us and when he comes to us with his promises and his prosperity, even when things aren't perfect on the outside, we absolutely glow on the inside. This is why we love searching out God's promises and his treasure from his word. Psalms 119, Psalms 119, I love this psalm. Here's verse 16 says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 18 says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 62 says, at midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I used to tell people when you read Psalm 19, just take the words out that say word or rules or statutes or promises or testimonies or law. Take those words out and put your favorite foods in there. At midnight, I rise to get a barbecue sandwich because I love those righteous, that righteous food. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's almost right in the center of your Bible and it's all about the Word of God, his promises, his rules, his law, his statutes, his testimony. It's an amazing psalm and it's an acrostic psalm. I think it's about 170 some verses. There are 22 stanzas in the psalm that correspond to the 22 characters or letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Every stanza begins with the corresponding letter and every single verse inside each stanza begins with that same letter. It's a brilliant song. It doesn't show that in the English version because there's no way the translators could make that work. It's beautiful and brilliantly written. Just as poetry, it's beautiful. Now, purpose, we talked about we talked about promises, prosperity, purpose. Purpose follows so closely behind promises and prosperity, that it's almost automatic. Paul says this in chapter 3, verse 14. He says, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. Another translation I pray to the Father from whom all the families of the earth get their name. In other words, the amazing truth about God's promises and his prosperity invokes a response from us. The first response for Paul was, I surrender, I bow my knees, I just surrender. It's like, I just can't stand and hold on to my own priorities anymore when I see this. I just have to let it all go because yours is just better. And this is stuff that just happens internally, regardless of what's happening outside. And then he talks about spiritual empowerment. He says in verse 16, I pray, because he falls to his knees and pray, and then he prays for others, which is amazing to me, because he's in prison, but he's praying for others, and he says, I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, God's prosperity, he will empower you with inner strength from his spirit, that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. And then he talks about spiritual growth and further hunger. He says your, that your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong, and you may have the power to understand, all, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is, and that you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God when we when we really see everything that God has done for us it it awakens us in our hearts and we think I want everyone to know about this it's the first thing that happens I want to tell people about what Jesus means to me that's why we teach the Bible in church like I'm doing this morning like Nathan does every Sunday that's why Every Christian should read the Bible, it's like our daily bread, it feeds our souls like food feeds our body. We learn about God's promises and prosperity and inspires us about what God wants to accomplish. <clears throat> after us kids left home, I grew up in Pennsylvania and after I, we, I was a middle child, so after all three of us left home. For a few years my parents would occasionally open their home to young people, college students particularly, and they would who needed a place to live for a season to kind of get on their feet. One young man named Tony wasn't going to college, he was just working. He was a short little round guy. He lived with my parents for a while, and every morning when he got up and left for work, he would take his Bible with him. It was kind of like one of these huge family Bibles, you know, it was peculiar. One morning, he left a little late and forgot it, and he soon came rushing back into the house, ran to his room, grabbed his Bible, and on his way back out, my mom says, wow, Tony, you're really dedicated. You're taking your Bible. Do you read it like at your break or lunch? He said, no, I need to sit on in my car so I can see out of the windshield. Well, I think maybe God has a higher purpose for the Bible than to be a booster seat in our car. Eric Metaxas, a couple little tidbits about the Bible that I think would be interesting before we wrap up. Eric Metaxas, who just wrote a book called Is Atheism Dead? Spends nearly half his time in this book showing how recent archeological discoveries from the Dead Sea Scrolls back in the 1940s to the discovery of ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are confirming over and over the accuracy in the historical authenticity of the Bible. They're seeing this in biology, cosmology. The, the, The Bible record is more and more by scientists who are not believers are seeing what the Bible has been teaching for thousands of years. Two skeptics back in two different decades the 1970s, Josh McDowell, 1990s Lee Strobel, Two skeptics. One was a journalist. Lee Strobel set out to prove that the Bible was nothing but fantasy. The end result of their tenacious skepticism-driven research brought them to faith in Jesus Christ. Josh McDowell wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. If you give the Bible a fair shake, he, he as a skeptic came to the conclusion I was wrong. Lee Strobel did the same thing, skeptic, and ended up coming to Jesus Christ because of the evidence of the authenticity of the Bible. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. The Bible shows the irrefutable historical evidence for a story that we all have come as Christians to know and love. But the story of Jesus is the culmination of four plus thousand years of God working to prepare people to come back to him. It's an amazing narrative. God did things throughout history and those things are true and authentic and are the basis of our faith and Paul unpacks them here and says God's promises, his prosperity, he's he's thinking of thousands of years of human history, broken human history, yet God consistently is doing His plan. When we discover the power of God's promises and the goodness that is His prosperity, we pursue Him. And in that pursuit, we find our purpose. If you want to improve the quality of your internal life and have the assurance about your future and really want to understand how much God loves you, and discover your place in a divine plan that is right now today unfolding in real time all over the world the source of all this is God himself and his word it's right there for us to take in here's how Paul wraps up our text I've already read it but I'm going to read this one more time then we're going to pray Paul says then Christ will make his home in your hearts As you trust in him, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ that is too great to fully understand. Then you will be complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I'd like to ask Pastor Nathan to come up and just, could you pray for us, Nathan? God bless you guys.
1: Thank you. Can you put your hands together? Wasn't that an awesome message? So good. Let's bow your heads. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your word is alive and that Doug just brought an incredible message. But every person in here heard something a little different. And so Lord, as we come to you, as Doug so eloquently put it, we find you when we seek for you. And so Lord, give us hungry hearts to pursue you that, that the purpose that we're looking for is not in the externals. Like Doug said, the purpose is not getting a better job or getting that raise or finding that Mr. Right. Or, the purpose is not there. The purpose is our response to your promises and your prosperity. And so, Lord, we're thankful, we're grateful. And with every, every head bowed, every eye closed, if you've never really made that step in your faith, you've come to church, you've heard it before, but today maybe you, it, it made sense. It made sense. And, and you want to you take that step of faith. You want to put your trust in God. Well, Jesus said this. He says, if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my Father. And if you'll take a step towards me, I'll take two towards you. <laughs> and maybe you feel that tugging this morning. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond. If that's you, and you say, I want to put my trust in I want to put my trust in Jesus this morning. This I've never understood it, but I understand it now. Just look up at me. I want to pray for you. I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. Thank you. Just look at me. Just look up at me. I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. I wanna do that today. I wanna to put my faith in Jesus. I, I know I've come to church a lot, but it, it made sense today. Something that it really stuck in my heart. Thank you. Just look up at me. Thank you so much. Father, I pray for every person that looked, looked up and every person that wanted to but didn't. Lord, just that one simple act of opening their eyes, I pray that spiritually you would do that right now that as they read the word, it's gonna make sense now. There's gonna be a new desire in them. They're gonna to wanna to come to church. They're gonna to wanna to worship. They don't even know what it is, but they wanna do it. That they're gonna to want to demonstrate their love and passion for you. And God, I pray with that one act of obedience, just looking up, just making that commitment, Lord, that you would honor that. Oh, God, that you would honor that, that you would just make yourself known to them as we go into this Christmas season, that it would be more than just Christmas carols and songs, that it would be real. It would be your promises. It would be, your God, your prosperity. It would be purpose. Lord, we just thank you so much, and we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, and everybody said a great big amen.